0: so welcome back and we thought we would begin with a little more complicated chant today it's our last our last go on this round of classes and I wanted to introduce a a three-part chant um, by a woman named Sue Kirkpatrick some of you will know it Um, and first let's just stand up together so we can really sing as you're able if you need to sit feel free to continue sitting So there are three parts to this chant. We're going to learn them each in turn. The first line, uh, it goes like this. We We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. Got it. Beautiful. The second line goes, everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice. Let's use it. Everybody listen through all the way. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice. Let's use it. Everybody living in this world. One heart beating again. Yeah. And living in this world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world, everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Okay. And the third line. We are one, and listen through um, both parts of it. We are One World, We are one heart beating We are one world, one heart beating We
1: are One World, we are One Heart beating We are one world, one heart beating We are
0: one
1: world, we are One Heart
0: beating
1: we are one world, one heart beating.
0: So now we're going to try to put them all together. <laughs> so I have suggestion. We're going to we break have. I'm the sure parts. we have a very good round singer here. Do you think, Karen, you
2: think you can lead a part? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll lead one part.
0: All right. So what we're going to do, we're going to, let's say, over here, divide roughly there. Part one, section two, section three. We'll bring in section one. We'll bring in section two, we'll bring in section three. Once we get all the parts, as- and I can help bring each yeah, one yeah, Okay. In. Once we uh, get everything established, then you can switch parts as you want to and sing any But <laughs> Let's get them all You're also in. welcome to run around <laughs> and <wave> your arms, <laughs> arms. You are, you are. So wait, uh, we're,
3: we're singing one part over and over here. Yeah,
0: one part over and yeah. over. Okay. One part, one part, one, part. <laughs> really one part. part. But Once they get started, you can sing any part you want. Okay. Once they're all brought in, okay. all right? Okay. All right. So take a breath Ah, and let awareness drop into your heart. And once we get each part established, just keep going when I drop out. But this first section is we are one world, one voice, one heart beating. We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. We are one world, one voice, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world. One heart beating. Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world. One heart beating. Everybody Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice,
2: let's use it. Everybody living living in this world, world. one heart beating. Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world. world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world. Everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody Everybody living in this world, everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world, everybody's got a voice, let's use it. Everybody living in this world, one heart beating. Everybody living in this world, beating, everybody's got a heart that's use everybody living in this world, one heart beating, everybody living in, in this world, everybody's got a voice, let's use it, everybody, say, everybody living in this world,
0: one heart beating
2: everybody living in this world, everybody's got a voice. Everybody coming into this world, one heartbeat. P- p- yeah. Wow. Wow.
0: Awesome. Wow. Really, really good. Well done. Okay, well done.
2: Thank you. That was great. Singing does something for us that nothing wow. else can do. Gives us sore throats. Sore <laughs> throats. Go- well, <laughs> other things can do that. And uh, this class, if you recall, this is our this is our reflection and wrap up session. So we haven't brought new texts, and we're not going to. We're going to use this as an opportunity for us to reflect, but also give you all a chance to reflect on what uh, this series has given you, how it, what you've learned, how it's changed you, what it makes you thinking about, anything at all. Uh, so this won't be. The, the same uh, kind of uh, 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 teaching that we've done in the other classes, and uh, that's, uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, do you have words that you want to begin with? Hmm,
0: well, let me take a moment of silence and see. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so wise. <laughs> <laughs> what a a joy and honor it's been to go on this journey together through these texts, Uh, texts that have often been a source of division, and conflict between two communities, and for us to actually use them as as something to gather around and journey together with. Uh, It's I I was remembering this morning, and I might have shared this in another session, I can't remember, but john Philip Newell, who's a Church of Scotland minister, he talks about um, early on in his career when he would be invited to interfaith gatherings, he would often use sort of lowest common denominator language because he didn't want to offend anyone. And so he found that even though he was the Christian representative, he wasn't really talking about Jesus much um, because he wanted to talk about, oh, we're all children of one God and we're all, you know, it's that kind of thing. And he said he was on this panel and, you know, there's the Buddhist and there's the rabbi and there's the Hindu and, and after going on this way, the rabbi took him aside and said, John Philip, we're here to share the treasures of our tradition. And and we're each bringing forth our treasure. Your treasure is Jesus. Don't be embarrassed. Share him with us. And it gave him permission to start sharing um, this treasure of his tradition. Um, and And I realized I was feeling in some of our classes a little weird, like, I'm not sure that I, I want to try to convince Jewish people to like Jesus. You have, every right to hate, you have every right to hate Christianity. Like the Christian tradition has inflicted so much horror and terror on the Jewish people um, for so long. And so it felt a little icky trying to say, isn't Jesus great? Um, and, and at the same time, I realized it, it's such a joy and privilege for me to get to say every day that I'm a disciple of this Uh, amazing radical rabbi and first century revolutionary and Jewish mystic. Um, I find him such a human treasure, uh, a human treasure, this figure, uh, what he represents, his vision of social justice, of inner transformation and of social transformation. Um, It's a delight to get to be his student. And so it's been a joy to get to share him in a way that um, Hopefully, is somewhat unbounded or boundaryless. You know, it's not a sharing in a way that isn't trying to convince anyone or convert anyone, um, but just sharing a treasure. Uh, so, so that's some of the thoughts I was thinking this morning, and and I'm really curious as we open this up that that this isn't the sort of teachy sort of sessions we've been doing, but we really want to hear like what has startled you, what has challenged you, what has um, surprised and delighted you. And how do you find yourself shifting and changing? Um, whether you're coming from a Christian perspective, a Jewish perspective, or some of you maybe n- uh, a non-traditional perspective, uh, we really want to to hear. So that's Thank some you. of the first thoughts. And and uh, uh, you're ready to talk.
3: <laughs> Usually, but yeah. I w- what didn't think I was, but what I w- what wanted to say is so apropos. Please like, do. This class has given me permission to love Jesus mm-hmm. as a Jew. I mean, as a Jewish person myself mm-hmm. and him as, as, a, as Jew. a Jew. I so grew up with, like, that's not for me. I can't have that, you know. Uh, and and this has just given me a whole new perspective. It's not that I didn't know that Jesus was a rabbi. I knew that. But studying it this way has really opened it up. and. Really, you know, allowed me to accept the wisdom and the beauty of the Gospels for what, you know, of his teachings for what they are, and realize that, like so many things, it's the people who want power afterwards that, you know, reminds me of my, one of my, maybe my favorite quote from Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, who said. It's not the searching after God that divides people. It's the claim to have found God as the only correct way to worship God that divides
4: people.
2: Well said. Well said. I, I want to say something, then we'll, we'll open it up, which is that for those of us who weren't here at the beginning of the series but have filtered in over time, I just want to remind you of our premise. Our premise uh, is that beyond the um, the uh, theologized Jesus, right the Jesus who becomes uh, uh, the centerpiece of Christian theology. Trying to dig down underneath that, there is a um, decades-long, century-long scholarship on trying to figure out who the historical Jesus was. To figure out who the historical Jesus was, you have to study Judaism, because Jesus was a, a Jewish preacher well, healer, uh, prophetic figure, uh, speaking to his Jewish audience in first century Judea under the thumb of Rome. To understand that, we have to understand more about what was going on in the Roman Empire in Judea at that time. To understand how Jesus was mythologized, you have to understand all of the stories of the Torah and all of the contemporary Midrashim that the Jewish writers of the Gospels um, were utilizing as their template for telling the story of Jesus as it became not a person's life, but a teaching and a a story of a transformational uh, um, mythic story, as as we've seen, using the motifs of Judaism. That's our premise. If we can approach Jesus as a Jew in the first century and then look at the circumstances around which the story around him grew then I can approach that as a rabbi. Right? And that's what's been so stimulating for me, so utterly stimulating um, to study it as, a, as someone who's fascinated about that era, about Judaism, about Hellenization, about you know, everything. So th- that's, this has been an amazing way to approach the subject. And I also want to add that, uh, as I expressed in early classes, For a Jewish teacher or a Jewish community to even approach this is really outrageous. Um, It could only be founded on our trust in our Christian partner, right? Because, and uh, how do you build that trust in a Christian partner
0: if you're Jewish? You know, it's like it takes a lot of
1: time
0: which we've been doing together for, what, five, five? five years five now? Five years, us, and even longer before. Susan did a lot of this same work. Right, and Susan, oh,
2: we have to thank Susan for opening the door to the Susan class, uh, who created our first interfaith study group together. Um, and, uh, oh, it's such a relief. It doesn't mean I'm not fully aware of the number of Christians who I am simply an object of their story, I'm not, a, I'm not a person in my own right. I'm, not, I'm filling a role in their story as a Jew. And it's like, I don't know how to talk to those people. Right? I have to, in some way, defend Judaism to those people. But there are plenty of Christians who are not doing that right now. And there, we can become co-travelers right? on our respective and intertwining religious quests. And that's what this has been like. Um, it's been really, uh, I, we're just getting started. It's a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> thing. So now, now I've said what I wanted to say in that regard. And let's hear from folks. Um, we'll just start over here. We'll go around. People will have a chance. Jack?
5: I just want to say, this class has been so wonderful for me. It has opened up so many doors, emotionally, spiritually, everything else. It is something I've been looking forward to are phenomenal. I love the annotated version. It gives me so much more information, setting up a context that I didn't necessarily know about before. <laughs> and as a disaffected Christian who became aware of the historical Jesus back in the 90s with John Dominic Cross and others, it still has been, like Borg says, meeting Jesus for the first time again. And I really love this Jesus, this rabbi, and putting him in the context of his Judaism with the allusions back to the Old Testament. That's blown my mind, where he was oh, well, this is what they said in Isaiah. This is the exact passage, so forth and so forth. And then when we got to John, which is a gospel that I never liked because of the anti-Semitism, I saw that, ah, I understand why. But even more so, that first chapter of the Word and the, the allusions back to Heraclitus and the Pre-Socratics blew my mind. And then we have the, the Divine Sophia. This is just like opening up all new areas of interest. Intrigued for me. I can't wait to do more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you oh I hope so I
1: hope so Miriam having been
6: The parsha, the portion we read of Moses right. when he escaped from Egypt, that he was taught to be a shepherd, and that it was when he was holding, looking for this lost lamb that he saw the burning bush. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a midrash <laughs> or whatever it is, it's like there we go. That's the one exciting thing I've seen and experienced in the experience of this class is how my childhood stories have now a connection to my Judaism. Mm-hmm. And I was reading, This is real, I was reading about the destruction and war foretold that you wrote about how Jesus foretold that the temple would be destroyed and there would be wars. That's what I read. And in my growing up, when he was complaining about, you know, doing these things, of speaking out and saying things that were wrong. And I was saying, wait a minute, that's what I experienced in Christianity. So it's very interesting to have this whole play. I'm really studying that. So I appreciate that very much. I feel like I can hold it all.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. And that's, isn't that what happens? Every tradition, a founder essentially comes as a reformer and breaks open the tradition anew and then the new tradition eventually <clears throat> calcifies and rigidifies and entrenches and you know, becomes institutionally and hierarchically heavy. And, and then you have to have someone else come in and smash it open again. And that's what the whole lineage of prophets are doing. They're coming in and smashing it back open again. Uh, yeah. And they're not appreciated
2: for it. and then, <laughs> Until after the fact. And then they're well, immortalized but, for it. Right. But then their teachings, as Matthew was saying, get co-opted into, as the new movement becomes powerful, the urge for power takes over. And a new institutional structure and dogma is created. And so it's, it's, it's ironic and sad and utterly human that these, these teachings that are supposed to shatter our um, comfortable power um, relationships uh, becomes enshrined as a way to maintain them. And so it goes. Joan and then Gary.
7: Um, my story, is, I was raised as a Reform Jew in, in, in my family home and uh, accepted my mother's request to get um, confirmed. It wasn't bat mm. And I did so because uh, in Sunday school <coughs> they told me that I would become part of the congregation of God in getting uh, confirmed. And for me, wow, this had incredible mean expectation. Um, so on that day when the ceremony was over and I stood on the bima and nothing had happened, I burst into tears. Oh my. And my mother came up to me and she said, oh, you're so happy. I said, mom, I'm never coming back. Oh. And she looked at me like I was kidding. I never went back. And I studied all the world scriptures. And the, the ones that attracted me the most was, first of all, Jesus. I thought, this guy is bad. He's a revolutionary. He teaches about the the, the path of love. And I just adored the stories of Jesus. Then the other um, teacher that really enthralled me was Buddha. You know, just leaving all of his wealth and everything behind to search for the kingdom of heaven and finding it within. Anyway, and then moving here. And, Two things were told to me when I moved here. Don't speed on 28. <laughs>
1: and
7: meet Rabbi Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Must meet Rabbi Jonathan. I, said, I I gave up Judaism a long time ago. I'm not gonna use it. No, kept on hearing it, kept on. And when I came here, I was teaching uh, rites of passage in Santa Barbara. The four directions, the earth, the you know, father sky. You came in the first service <laughs> with a guitar on your back and you, you said, okay, now let's put our feet down on, on Mother Earth and just breathe and opening up to the energies and letting it flow in through. And I said, where the heck am I? <laughs> I'm back at rites of passage, you know. So coming here has just meant um, finding again the juice of my own tradition and this class, you know, I really never understood how, what, what you both did for me was put together that whole story of Jesus in, like you were saying, in the context of being a Jewish rabbi historically and seeing all the, because I used to uh, read the Psalms and I understood how his life was like a repetition of, of the prophecies in the Jewish Bible and um, I don't know, for me, watching you two play ping pong. You're both such incredible (laughs) scholars, so well-matched in your curiosity and your openness. And it was just revelation? Revelatory. Just being here and watching this incredible dynamic. And and I gained so much from it. So thank thank
0: you. Thank you. These are very nice reflections.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Joan. One
0: of the things that Joan brought in there that I I, I will respond to, she said she loved Jesus and the Buddha, right? Those are my two favorites. Those are your two favorite guys. Um, One of the things we didn't really have time to dig into in this course, but that's so central uh, to me as a follower of Jesus, is the... The mystical and contemplative side of his teaching and we focus mostly on the prophetic side the social justice prophetic side Um, but there's such a strong uh, this is why i find he's such a helpful figure for the world we live in today is that he's an integrative figure in regards to those two currents of contemplation and social action um, and, and we see him very much as the social prophet who's calling for justice and societal transformation. Um, but we didn't look so much at the contemplative vein within his teaching. We might have touched on it. It's all a blur all these weeks. But we see again and again he has a rhythm of withdrawal, retreat, and um, quiet contemplative prayer. Um, in Mark's Gospel we get his practice described as uh, early in the morning, while it's still dark, he would go away to a quiet place. And there he would, he would pray, there he would be with God. And we see him calling his students into retreat. When they've been out um, teaching and sharing and healing with the crowds, he'll say, let us withdraw to a quiet place. And they'll get on the boat and go to the other side of the lake to um, you know, recharge. And so that contemplative act of balance that often in the history of religion we've pulled apart, and especially in Christianity, we cloister our contemplatives away in monasteries, and then we've got our you know, Crusader social justice activists burning themselves out on the streets. And in um, Jesus, I think we see such an integrated model, uh, our balanced model of those, those two things. And, and that may be very much the case with all the, the great Hebrew prophets, that integration. But it's one of the things I so appreciate about him as a teacher, that they're both there.
2: Uh, thank you, well said. Two
0: thoughts about that, one is
2: that Getting up before the dawn was the standard practice of, uh, in Jewish prayer. The morning service is called shacharit. That means dawn. Shachar is dawn. So the Talmud goes to great length to ascertain. When is it dawn, and when should you do these prayers? Uh, so he was doing his morning shacharit. Again, just to contextualize, he wasn't Everyone wasn't like watching um, YouTube while Jesus went and did his beautiful morning prayer. All spiritually connected Jews were doing males, especially because this was incumbent on men, and we don't have the record uh, basically of what the women were doing.
1: They didn't
2: have time. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have time. They were meditating in a different way, they were meditating in different ways, says Patricia. That's right. Over the dishes. So. Um, uh, um, so I want to I point that out once again. If you read about Jesus getting up at dawn, that's because he was I a do. pious <laughs> and uh, you know, mystic, mystical Jew. So for example, I mentioned this in another class, Rabbi Akiva, who is the mystical and social activist par excellence in Jewish teaching from the latter part of the first century, uh, it says about Akiva, that he would, uh, when he would pray by himself, he would, he would um, move so ecstatically, bowing and standing and, sh- and, and swaying, that he would start his prayer on one side of the room and end up on the other,
1: <laughs>
2: which is a ex- great ex- description of ecstatic prayer, right? Uh, and he would take a long time. And then it says, but when he led uh, the congregation, he would shorten his prayers so as not to be a burden to the community who had to go to work. Say, for example, and another story about about that's told. Another sort of classic statement in the Torah, in the Talmud, is that the the vatikim, which I don't know how to translate vatikim because it means. How would you translate that? We
1: say veterans. But the veterans, the old timers,
2: the guys who really are good at this, uh, would meditate for an hour every morning before prayer. Right? So in the time of first century Judea, these practices were widespread, and Jesus was participating. So again, that's been how we've I want to contextualize always, because Jesus, we lost the context when Christianity just went, uh, separated itself uh, and, uh, uh, from, from its Jewish roots in that way. Um, uh, let's see, Gary, and then I'll go over here. We'll get over to this side of the room. I promise.
8: I would like to present a, uh, a question to the group about music, um, but just a couple quick observations prior. To that. William James says that the uh, most divinely inspired individuals are highly intelligent neurotics. <laughs> <laughs> highly
2: intelligent. William James, a famous writer about the varieties of religious experience, from or 1908 or uh, something?
8: Henry James' brother.
2: Right, and, and he said?
8: He said the, uh, the most divinely inspired individual must be highly intelligent and an erotic. Uh, oh, good. That, to I'll have, fit right essentially, in. The, the, the patience <laughs> to stay with So that, and, you know, I've been wondering throughout this course about these guys who wrote these <coughs> passages and asking myself, uh, were they divinely inspired? Were they just very bright, it, it, attuned guys, or were they simply bloggers? And I'm, I'm still dealing with that question. Um,
2: bloggers. bloggers. Uh, yeah, I just, roll with it, everybody. I think
8: that's right <laughs> out to a book that I'd like to, to recommend called Approaching the, the Quran, um, which takes the position it's a translation of a number of the surahs but takes the decision that the Quran has been radically misunderstood because it's uh, replete with uh, multiple meanings that have been reduced one way or another. And this guy translates the text in several ways and presents the rhythm and the beauty of it in that way. Uh, I find it very interesting. But a question about music is this. And I'm not asking anyone to be a music theorist. That's that's my area of expertise. Right. But. you guys have the B minor mass, and we have the dreidel song, right? That's not true. Well, and I respect another The
9: dreidel song was the song we learned in school when it was the only Jewish song we ever learned.
1: Yeah, it's
0: like we've also had <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
8: I
1: respect a different
8: point of view. But I can suggest that on the highest level of architecture, that there's the B minor mass, and that's it. You know, there's a t- okay. So what my question is, okay, the first two bars of the B minor mass encompass all of the suffering man is capable of experiencing in my judgment. Why is it that the liturgical texts of Christianity lend themselves so magnificently to the expression of these most fundamental vulnerabilities it, in ways that
2: I think no other religion has. I'd
10: like to, say, to respond. Yeah, uh, exactly. What
2: The church had the money that, huh? to facilitate having artists in residence who lived in one place for a long enough time to be able to develop their art and craft in huh. such <laughs> a way. That's a possible answer to that question. Uh, I would also say that, uh, um, you know, there... The study of Jewish music and uh, the history of Jewish music is that the Jews, there is no such thing. The Jews living all over the world essentially absorb the musical genres of wherever they live. And um, uh, our liturgical music is a reflection of that. Um, The music that we now, that those of us who grew up in a formal synagogue think of as synagogue music, Is music of the late nineteenth century, written in Germany, Mm -hmm. as a reflection of high church music of that time. In the Renaissance, uh, the Jews who did become composers in Venice and mostly in Italy wrote Baroque and uh, classical settings of (laughs) liturgical prayer. But there is no. But it's it's (coughs) it's impossible to identify what Jewish music is. We have the text. Now, when you think about Christian music, that the Eurocentric Christian music is, I have have no qualm with how magnificent it is. It's like it's astonishing. But that's not the music that's Christian music in Africa or in Latin America or in. So in other words, our categories need to expand a little bit. Or we need to say, how come in high culture Europe of the late Middle Ages and early modern period, this music flowered? Right. But to make it as an overarching statement about Christian music versus Jewish music, it's not a real answerable question because of the, of the categories. That's my response to your question. Um, I also want to... Okay, Karen?
11: Um, I mean, I, I think you know the categories of music, but how, how music reaches people in a deep way. And I just want to say I had this experience this week. I was down in the city at Temple Emmanuel. It was a um, commemoration of the liberation of Auschwitz (coughs) and they had the cast from the Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof there to do some excerpts Mm. and the experience (coughs) of this music with um, Yitzchak Perlman playing the fiddle and the singers and the people and music is really is about communication and about what happens in your heart and your spirit we were all prepared we sang the 23rd song (coughs) we sang you know the prayers for the dead and prayers for commemoration so we were also prepared with being in the context of this moment of we are mourning this tragedy and we are also celebrating the life and there are thousands of jews in this cathedral really in the best sense of the word and here is this music at the center of it and is that the B minor mass? Is that is How do you compare them? Right, right. Is
2: sunrise, sunset our B minor mass? Is, uh, uh, and then that's worth talking about. What music moves with people in what context and why? So again, our Eurocentric Christian high culture um, bias, which has dominated our uh, understanding of what good music is. Um, is, should be brought into question. Uh, and uh, uh, that doesn't diminish its power, but it diminishes its hegemony. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I want to, uh, I'll get you, church. but I also just, I'll, I'll get you, I, think, I promise. Um, uh, also, it's an opportunity to reflect what's, why is Fiddler on the Mu- Roof Jewish music? Well, it brings in Eastern European motifs that became the music of Ashkenazi Jews mixed with, the Great American Songbook, which was created by American Jews here. So it is Jewish music in a way, but it's not universal Jewish music. There are plenty of Jews who would hear that song and say, eh. <laughs> right, because uh, they don't share our cultural uh, soup. Um, so
0: again, uh, thanks for all those comments. And now. you also so, have yeah. to ask the question, when you deal with someone like a Bach or a Beethoven or a Mozart, Are Mozart, is, is this music incredible because they're because they're being inspired by these texts, or do these texts become incredible in their music because the texts are being interpreted by these prodigies? And would they have brought the same musical beauty to the texts of another tradition if that was the text they had been working with? So you know, which, and I'm sure inspiration flows obviously in both directions, but I don't think you can make it as simple as the music is amazing because the texts were Christian texts. There's and uh, some, some, also one
12: Something I want to recommend. Uh, not too long ago, there was a program on Channel 13 on public television called The Three Cantors.
1: Mm. Yes.
12: And I listened to this music. I actually recorded it so I could listen to it again. And I could hear definite influences, cross influence, from, from the Middle East, from uh, uh, you know, uh, contemporary and recent uh, Western music, liturgical music. That's right. Uh, Can I expand now? Please do. Um, I came back to the Episcopal Church after 60 years away. Five years ago this month, interestingly enough, I was drawn in by meeting Matthew at a birthday party of another priest who lived in the area and uh, started getting involved in studying the Gospel of Thomas. And then I joined the Education for Ministry group at Holy Cross uh, Monastery. And we have a branch of that also now at uh, St. Gregory's. And the first thing we studied was reading the Hebrew Bible. And I ha- had a lot of difficulty with it. I had difficulty with the violent parts. I had difficulty with some of the misogyny. But there were a lot of jewels there from, from Genesis and from Isaiah you know, that started lighting it up for me. And then coming into this class, I thought, hey, that's what Jesus was reading too, <laughs> the stuff that I was going through. and Because I had thought, going back to my childhood, I'd see these crucifixes, and across the top it said I-N-R-I, which was stood for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I said, well, if Jesus were the King of the Jews, what am I? Hold the phone here. <laughs> so, come on. So, so getting the perspective now, I think this expanded perspective that Jonathan and uh, Matthew have presented <clears throat> has been really enlightening in so many different ways. And uh, I have to say two things. The first one is, if for some reason the the parish at St. Gregory's collapsed and disappeared. I would be perfectly comfortable coming over and joining this (laughs) group. I'm absolutely serious. I feel as at home here as I do in my own church. That's beautiful. I'm I'm reminded of a little ditty we used to say when I was a kid. And this was after I got, as a 7 year old I got invited to a Seder at the local Reformed temple in Croton-on-Hudson. They invited kids from Sunday schools from all over the town. My first experience of Jewish food and you fish, eh, but the matzo was great. (laughs) (laughs) After that wonderful experience there, we came away with this little ditty. It said, roses are reddish, violets are bluish. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be Jewish. I
8: never heard that. I'd be perfectly happy <laughs> of,
12: of joining this congregation if for some reason my congregation was no longer there. And I consider you all part of my family, and thank you so much. Well said,
2: well said. Well said, well said. Susan, you had your hand up before.
13: Well, yeah, I wanted to go back to Gary. Yes. And Matthew somewhat responded to that, but I wanted to, and this wouldn't be the place to do it, but I would love to know what Gary, how Gary would go about thinking about his question of the, uh, those words, and do they lend themselves uniquely to extraordinary music?
2: Let's, w- uh, let's have that conversation sometime. Not now, but, uh, but I'm sure you'll, you, this is your field. I'd be fascinated to talk to you more about it. Absolutely.
10: Yes? Um, I have a feeling that there are a number of people here who might agree with me. Um, I'm astonished. Mm. (laughs) and I find that that to me was just oh she's astonished at how much she did not know how much I did not know and um, I mean others have expressed it differently but the feeling in the room in this day and age when everybody's fighting with each other that people can 50, 60 people can sit and be kind to each other and not find that a problem is or Oh, thank you.
2: Should I repeat that, Ronnie?
1: Yeah. Well, some people don't have loud voices, so I'll repeat it.
2: Okay. She was saying that the fact, in addition to uh, being aware of how much we don't know, and then how stimulating it is, uh, deeply stimulating to uh, learn. uh, The other thing is that a group this size can be together, searching and learning together without getting on each other's. in each other's faces and being, being uh, you know, we can treat each other kindly and in the spirit of dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.
14: Yes. Um, so I want to thank you both. It was yes. a wonderful series. And what was most profound to me was the part where you talked about uh, them both being a si- siblings uh, coming out of the womb of the destruction of the temple. Right. And. Um, So I have some comments that uh, accentuate that that I would like to express. And I've written notes so I don't lose any of them. Uh, (laughs) Good, and thanks for standing up. That'll help. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in the same way you describe them as siblings, the Pathwork guy addresses this very same concept. And he says the original intent of spirit was that Judaism and Christianity would be one religion. That was the original intent. And he goes on to say it is meaningful and not an accident that Jesus was born within the Jewish religion. Because in the early days, all the other religions extant at that time worshipped a pantheon of spirits, some high and some low. And the Jewish people were the only ones who believed in one God. So actually, the way I see it, the religious lineage of all Christians can be traced back to Judaism. They may well be called Jewish Christians. Simultaneously, the Jewish religion teaches that the Messiah would come to fulfill the scriptures. And the guide suggests that it would be false loyalty tradition, to tradition for Jews not to open their minds and hearts to the possibility that Jesus was indeed the extraordinary incarnation. Messiah. So Jews were open to the possibility would become Christian Jews. Jews versus Christians, Christians versus Jews, that brought so much pain, suffering, and guilt over the last 2,000 years. The guide suggests that as we move into the new age, a new possibility emerges, a unit of possibility, not either or Jesus or Christian but both Christian Jews and Jewish Christians. These meetings <coughs> created by Jonathan Matthew signal the beginning of the new age, <laughs> particularly here
1: in
0: Woodstock. Thank you. Yeah. So, so the, I, I would just respond, well, thank you for the, the beautiful vision. I think that some of the language and um, some of those statements is actually part of the language we've been trying to avoid and veer away from um, the language that um, Jews should consider that Jesus is this or, or um, vice versa. Um, part of my understanding, part of I think what we've been looking at here is that, uh, for example, a concept like Messiah, we can see that as a cultural hope and expectation within a religious tradition. And then that category is applied to the experience of Jesus. Um, so this is, this is how I understand a lot of this language, that these early followers are engaged in an act of myth making in the best sense. They're making sense of Jesus using the language of their categories. So the question then for me isn't, was Jesus the Messiah and the Jewish people just didn't get on board? And should Jews now consider that maybe Jesus was the Messiah? I would rather just like throw that question away and say, um, for these early followers of Jesus, they found in him the fulfillment of their messianic hope. And so that's a title they gave to him. That doesn't mean everyone has to give him that title, um, and it doesn't mean that he has to have that title to be loved or respected. So I wouldn't propose what that text proposed, that that the Jewish people in the room should consider that maybe Jesus was the Messiah. I, I don't care about that language at all myself personally. Um, I think that's uh, a language applied to the experience of him after the fact that's secondary to the experience of him. Um, so, I, I just want to name, I felt a little uneasy with the statement. I don't think, it's great if people want to be Jewish Christians and Christian Jews. We don't have to be that though. We can be Christians who love Judaism and Judaism uh, Jews who uh, love uh, Jesus within his Jewish context. So I just I want to nuance that slightly um, because I felt a little uneasiness around some of the language. What he said. <laughs> 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 um, but, but thank you for but, that. Sharing. But the sentiment
2: yeah. I, yes. I share completely. The, the, the overarching schematizing of history, I'm always wary of. There was this one people in the entire world, the Jews, who understood who that there one was God? one God. Then this individual came along, and uh, Jesus, who brought it to the world, it's like that's myth. That's not the way. That's not human history. Mm-hmm. And I I can identify it as myth, and appreciate it. And when I say myth, here we go again. I'm not saying it's a lie. I'm not saying. I'm saying it's a schematized story that's embedded with meaning for us to unpack. Uh, but historically, then to say for someone speaking in that tone to then say, and so much enmity has happened between Jews and Christians since then. No. Christians have made life utterly miserable for Jews for all that time. Mm -hmm. It's not, why can't we all get along? And speaking as the minority and as the victim of anti-Semitism, we can't talk that way in a way that's fair to history. Um, And so it's very important even as we harbor, as I do, really elevated sentiments about what we might, what, what we might be birthing here. I also put it in, the, in, the, in a larger context of social and historical reality. And that's important to me. And I hope that you don't feel offended by <coughs> my comments. Um,
0: so let's take a breath. Oh, yes.
2: <laughs> so I'll get to you in a moment, Ronnie. Hattie?
9: Okay. Um, there's a couple of questions that, for me, weren't answered, but... Just a couple? Just a couple. <laughs> That's good.
0: Okay. Well, done. No, but... We'll, we'll knock those out, out right now. Wait, um, I,
9: I would like to say how precious this time has been to me. And I know, uh, like, last week, it was like, it's fair <laughs> mm. I felt lost. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to gather. And mm-hmm. I was very excited about this Thursday. And I'm going to feel very unhappy that <laughs> we're <because laughs> <I'm> not gathering. <laughs> because I, lo- I love this. Mm-hmm. And I love everybody mm-hmm. here, even if I
1: don't know everybody. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But, um, but
9: this is kind of. Uh, within our church services. It's brought a, 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 a like a, a kind of a glitter of vitality that mm. I didn't appreciate, because it has drawn me back into sort of history in a superficial way, but still knowing that there's a lot more to it than just our readings, and where the readings interconnect, <coughs> where it all comes together, it, it's just illuminated. Mm. Our own service at St. Gregory's, for mm, and um, <coughs> uh, the, just harking back for a moment to the music, we said so many things here, and I, I kept saying, "We have a hymn for that." <laughs> <laughs> the hymnal, I'm like, a, I love the hymnal. I'm always saying, "Now look, this hymn." says it, this is the story, here it is. It's kind of brilliant in an old fashioned way, because a lot of our hymns are, are from the Victorian era, but they nailed it every time. <laughs> and I love the hymns. <laughs> um, so, um, many, many years ago, back in the middle 60s, I read Martin Luther, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I have it for ages, but I feel like I should go back and read again. Mm-hmm. and keep he wrote about the, the holy man, La, the Lamedvovnik.
2: The Lamedvovniks? Yes. Uh-huh. I'll talk about that.
9: And mm-hmm. I just thought they were wonderful, particularly. It stayed with me all these years, 50 years, more than 50 years. One of them was so in love with, with God and, and so inspired that he threw himself into the well yeah. of the village. He just was like spinning, as you were saying, spinning around and so happy. They just plunged into the well and they had to fish. <laughs> 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 I love that. So, and that um, of one or two quick more things. Um, what we're studying actually isn't unique. Goes way back in before two thousand years, before three thousand years, before five thousand years into the records of that we know of of the ancient civilizations and the stories they almost everyone has the the, sto- the ancient stories are are very similar the virgin birth all that kind of thing it's still it's there way before this and what let's see i always, i wanted to ask you i don't know what's the difference between the torah and the talmud oh, oh okay good.
2: that's a <laughs> crucial question short answer The Torah is known as the written Torah. The Talmud is called, in our tradition, the oral Torah, um, which was eventually written down. So the Talmud is this massive sea of commentary, expansion, and um, um, uh, explanation, exploration of the Torah. The Torah, when it became canonized, around, say, 400 BCE, we're not sure the exact date, uh, as soon as it was canonized, it couldn't be revised any further. And, a, and then right from there, a body of interpretation began to arise that culminated in a collection a thousand years later, when it was finally collected and written down, called the Talmud. So the Talmud is the compendium of all the commentaries on the Torah after it became a fixed written text. That would be my short answer. Do you think it's accurate enough? Uh, I think you need to say what the
1: Torah is. The
0: Torah is revelation. It's scripture. It's the five books of Moses. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those first five books of the Hebrew Bible, that's Torah. (coughs) That's Torah. But also, when we use the word Torah, it can
2: expand (laughs) to include the entire Hebrew Bible. Or it can just refer to the five books. But it's, it's understood to be that's the, that which we call the Hebrew scriptures, written down and fixed.
1: Does, does it mean teaching?
2: Torah means, as we've said, Torah means teaching. It doesn't mean law. right? Lahorot means to instruct or to teach. So that's another important thing. Torah means teaching. Talmud means learning. All the books, this is Judaism, right? Everything, all our words. Mishnah means teaching. Talmud me, in Talmud means teaching, learning. Torah means teaching. That's what all the holy books are called teachings in Judaism. Uh, they're not called the law. That is a um, uh, even though that's how it gets translated into the Septuagint law as law right. in Greek. That got translated as law, but then that got captured by Christianity To stereotype Judaism as the religion of law as opposed to the religion of (laughs) love. And so, if you think of Torah as the law, you are embedded in the Christian worldview about what Judaism is. Um, uh, Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry, Ronnie's next. Hold on. Wait,
9: wait, wait. Oh, go ahead, Hattie. We have time. Okay. Um, So, um, the real bombshell for me. all of this was to find out that it's actually Paul who set down the tradition of the Last Supper. um, That he saw this event which is core, central to the church services in a vision.
0: We don't know. That that was one interpretation. (coughs) We're told, he says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you that on the night before Jesus died, and he recounts the story. So he's the first to set that story down. And well, we don't know exactly where he received it from because he says, I received it from the Lord. Yeah. So,
9: Well, in one way or another, it came through Paul. Yes, he's but the first somehow, to recount I it. I always wondered, how, who was writing down the thing there on the last supper? Who was recording it? And how was it recorded? But it came to Paul from uh, uh, other sources that an actual presence I'm, that was a bombshell for me and one more thing if you don't mind um, the word Hosanna was translated please save us
2: that's right that's what it means
9: and so I was like how weird is that that the angels are saying Hosanna in the highest please save us in the highest I didn't, it didn't well it could continue. also
2: mean redeem yeah. um, let's see hoshia. Hoshia
9: uh, save It's like more like a, like a celebratory thing but it's actually a plea to no them.
2: it's a plea hoshana is a pre a plea because it's the prayer for rain uh, it's primarily <laughs> associated with the prayers for rain in Jewish tradition and we're we're praying for the salvation of the rains <laughs> to fall yeah. Yeah. we
9: sing it all the time in different yeah places. but, that's, but it didn't. I thought it was like
5: this
2: well it becomes a praise but it's also it's not a, right it's different than hallelujah it is very different Ronnie that's it. okay thank you that was great happy
15: <laughs> this has been a, a really wonderful learning experience I never knew practically everything that I learned at this session but for me it's Un- I feel this tremendous unsatisfactory feeling because I feel there's a- been a big disconnect between what you fellows were telling us and the reality of the existence we live, mm-hmm. and I find it very disturbing, which makes me think, well, what is all this? A lot of baloney? Uh, what's it got to do with the reality, with with the Holocaust, which is so horrendous? And where is all this love and, and goodness and sanctity of life and image of God? Where is that in terms of the realities of today? I mean, all these bits of knowledge that are so intellectually interesting. I could go on all day and listen. But what's it got to do with the reality that we live with? What's Everything. it got to do well, with I the just Holocaust? Wanna,
2: I just want to say, Rania, I think many of us feel exactly the way you do and have that same internal conversation. So I understand your point. And once again, As I've told you many times, I have the questions, but I don't have the answers. And we're here to seek together. And if I could tie it up
0: with the bow, I would be so happy, and I cannot. But what what does what we've been exploring have to do with realities of the world we're living into? We're exploring a a, a way forward as a human family. We're exploring the great message of justice and love at the heart of our traditions. And so I think what we've been exploring has everything to do with how we confront the dark realities of of life in the world today. We need this work to heal old wounds, to heal old misunderstandings, to confront the the crises and the injustices and the darkness that we face. So I think what we're doing is very much um, relevant uh, to finding a way forward. And the question you're asking, well, what about all the horrors of history? now, that's a whole other series of classes, of course. But as we've looked at, right. this was very, not a class on the history of anti-Semitism. Right. It was a class on we've taught that these here. basic texts, these gospel texts. Of course, sometime after these texts emerged and after Jesus came on the scene, as he did, uh, his movement was co-opted by and merged with Roman imperial power. And it became an official state-sanctioned religion backed with imperial authority and everyone was expected to join the state religion. Um, and, and so suddenly you have something that doesn't look very much at all like what the original rabbi himself was up to. Um, but that's, that's a whole other series. We're just looking at these texts and trying to get under the layers to what the teachings of Jesus <laughs> were and what the gospels were presenting.
15: So what is the image of God? Where did that come from?
0: The, the Torah. From God. Uh, Genesis. <laughs>
1: Genesis,
15: <laughs>
0: Genesis
1: of God.
2: Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 says that the creator makes the human beings in the divine image, male and female. God created them. Right. So Non-binary, too. <laughs> so so I, here's, what, here's the way I work, Ronnie. It's all inside us. There's the part of us that's greedy, that's violent, that's judgmental, that's hateful. And then there's the part of us that holds a little baby and looks in its face and knows that there's something sublime about life. And how do we take that feeling of sublimity, that there's something full of love and beauty and freshness and aliveness that is also part of living, and bring it into and make it the (coughs) predominant attitude with which we approach the world? That, for me, is the purpose of an organized religion. That doesn't mean organized religion succeed at it, but I can't speak for all organized religion. I can only speak for what we try to do here at the Woodstock Jewish congregation, which is to take the feelings that we have of love, connection, and openness, and try to make them predominant over our baser feelings. To the degree that we succeed, we have added some goodness to the world. And uh, that's about all I can say about it. And for those who want to participate in this experiment as opposed in the experiment of he who has the most stuff when they die wins, um, should participate in this sort of gathering. And uh, there's no guarantees. I can't fix the world. We're careening towards disaster. And I'm still going to do this because it makes my life filled with goodness and love. But and so I'm not going to give in to the bitterness and to the hatred. So what else is there for me to say, Ronnie?
15: It's so palliative. This palliative? Whole I palliative. Okay, so now this making. here,
2: we completely disagree.
1: <laughs>
2: okay? We will continue to disagree about that. I think, like Martin Luther King thought, that the power of love was the power that we need to bring as much into the spotlight and into human relationships as possible. If you consider that palliative, then you will choose other strategies. I can't guide you on those other strategies. This is the path I've chosen. Avis.
10: Um, I'm so glad you called on me right now, because everything you've all said has been so inspiring. And I want to thank you both so very much. But not only you, but it's also the input from everyone here who's sitting alongside me? Um, one of them, I just two things. The first is, I wish history could start on the history of religion with the end of this class. Because <laughs> I don't want to know anymore. Right, let, 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 let's let the movie end here, everybody. <laughs> All I can say is that if it stopped right now, we wouldn't be doing a lot of the things and crying at night, and being depressed, etc. So <laughs> if we can stop now, fine. The second thing is, is, because the reason I put my hand up right then was because of, you mentioned Martin Luther King. And le- last Saturday night, we saw King in the Wilderness. We showed
2: that movie here.
10: And I have to tell you, by going to this class, made me understand Martin Luther King in a different way. I was hearing his words And I was hearing your words. I was hearing what we were talking about here. And when he was talking about poverty, and I was thinking about how Jesus was so concerned about the poor and their environment and leading them into goodness and to try to open the eyes of the world to people who were needy. And I said, that's what we were just talking about. That was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that this story, Martin Luther King, like the (coughs) night before he died, I felt like I was at the Last Supper. Mm
1: -hmm. And it was
10: so emotional for me that I I just couldn't calm down for a very, very long time. So you helped me when you talk about being modernity, well, there it was for me Mm -hmm. that your explanations of things that happened 2,000 years ago happened in 1968.
2: Thank you. Uh, uh, I, I truly feel that King is fully deserving of being considered as part of the ancient Jewish prophetic tradition in the way he spoke and in the way he lived his life. And he was shot and killed, right? So does that make everything he did a waste? You know, No, it means that we humans are a very conflicted bunch. And, uh, and, that, and also, I want to remind you that Jesus was speaking on behalf of the discarded and of society in <clears> the <throat> firm tradition of every Hebrew prophet.
5: <laughs> right?
2: So he didn't invent that language either. And thank you, Abis. Jeff, you wanted to speak before. I
5: thought maybe Hattie would understand the Talmud a little bit better if you explained to her how many volumes the Talmud is. <laughs> the Talmud is 47 <laughs> volumes. <laughs> and that's just
2: what got once yeah. the Talmud, in the 6th century when the Talmud was finally like okay this is it well there was actually a Babylonian version and there was a, a Palestinian version because these were two different Jewish communities and then once it was all completed there was all this extant material that was still being that didn't get included in the collection and so there's more books outside the Talmud so when we in our Jewish tradition when we call it the oral tradition because Whatever got written down was not even, was like a slight, uh, just a a sort of like a a snapshot of the entire oral tradition, and that's why in the Jewish tradition, we refer refer to it as the Sea of Talmud. Um, Yeah, yeah, and it's a living tradition. Barbara.
16: Barbara. Um, I spoke a little bit about this um, to you, Jonathan, at the end of those last class, but what I've been struck by is just a feeling of such honor and awe and gratitude for these first century Jews who in the midst of the Roman occupation and destruction and horror and the, the whole temple being raised and thousands and thousands of people dying, and there were these glimmers, these bright lights, that these intelligent beings who were heartful and they loved God and they had this intimacy and they somehow they kept this going whether it was in rabbinical Judaism or Christian the Christian offshoot but there was something that here we are today 2000 years later speaking about it and we don't even know how many people lived and died to you know carry the torch and pass it on to us and I just want to honor just these amazing people Mm. who allowed us to be here now.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Barbara, that's important. Thank you and well said.
17: Arnie. First of all, all all credit to our wonderful teachers teachers and rabbis. And and, and when when, uh, Matthew speaks, I I feel I'm listening to a first century rabbi.
1: (laughs) That's
17: a compliment. Uh, But so much credit to them because, um, you know, in in the Jewish tradition, the name of God, the specific name of God, the tetragrammaton, we have four letters in the Torah that that signify God. No one knows how it's pronounced. No one, not even the rabbis. No one knows Uh, how it's pronounced. Arnie, it's important
2: to, to tell people this. It's not pronounced Jehovah, which was a rendering into German that then, because of the yud and jay being, and the he and the vav and the he becoming anglicized. And it's not Yahweh, which is a scholarly take on how the name was pronounced. We actually do not know the name of God.
17: So it's, it's also called the ineffable name of God. In other words, you don't pronounce it, but the, uh, our teachers there's another ineffable uh, name uh, in the synagogue, and that's Jesus. And that's something. Else. That's, <laughs> right. that's <laughs> right. That's right. Wow. <laughs> never. That's ineffable. We don't say that. That's so um, our teachers have effed. <laughs> 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 effed. <laughs> <laughs> effed the ineffable.
2: <laughs> 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 no
5: disrespect. <the laughs> <laughs> that's great. What it's
2: true. We've broken a taboo. Yes,
17: yes. You're, we're you're breaking the, the box. taboo. You've broken the
2: box, and we're seeing what happens. And that's which is again—that's just kind of how I roll. Right. <laughs> I mean, you didn't know me when I was twenty. So but that's
0: that's what's exciting. Already c- continue. What were you going
17: to say? Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm I'm connected to history, and, and I'm always trying to understand why this split, why this split, or what, what happened. What was the crucial point? Why the split? Why this after, split after the uh, after the temple was destroyed? And, uh, Rabbi Gregory, uh, <laughs> R- 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 Rabbi <laughs> St. Gregory, St. And, uh, <laughs> well, uh, because the, there came a point where uh, the Christians were anathematized. Anathema, you know, it's like um, serving law to a vegetarian, that's an anathema. So uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Christians were anathematized, the Jewish Christians were anathematized, and um, so I'm I trying to find out like where did this happen? Where where did this all start? But uh, so I started reading the Bible, the Christian Bible, Year, years ago. I picked the wrong book. Uh, I picked the book of John. Oh, bad, bad. <laughs> book to start with because especially
0: if you're a Jew. Yeah.
17: Everything everything is context. Yeah. Everything is context. If I had started with Mark, that would have been quite quite a different thing. And Matthew and Luke, of course, you know, uh, secondary to that. But when you when a Jew picks up the, the, the New Testament um, uh, and and reads the Book of John, it's the Jews, mm-hmm. the Jews, the Jews, mm-hmm. and I and I'm saying, how how will this ever stop? Mm-hmm. We we lay Auschwitz, you know, they they, this is the stuff that made Auschwitz. When will they ever ter- ever learn? How will we ever get together? And I was saying, you know. The day that the Christian Church decanonizes um, canonizes the Book of John, that'll be a start. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that will be the day that the Rabbi Farrakhan rears a string tie. You know, so you know, it ain't about to happen. Mm. But it, so everything is context, uh, and, and we see where where, where John came from uh, because. The Jews, uh, we have a prayer called the Sh'mona Esrei, the eighteen benedictions, and it's very central to the Jewish core. But they added one. They added one, and and it's in Hebrew. It's which means and to those who change, let there be no hope, and let they be eradicated. Mm-hmm. And what that what they're referring to is the new Christian sect. Mm-hmm. So how could a Jewish Christian uh, go into a synagogue and read the 18 benedictions, which is central to Jewish liturgy. That's the split. Yeah. That's the split. Mm-hmm. And so um, I could go on and on and on. But 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 I but I would Don't. say that um, uh, Bertrand Russell put it really beautifully. He was a famous you know for, you know early 20th century and and a fam- famous philosopher. Uh, 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 um, What's the
2: word? Uh, You don't mean philosopher? Uh,
17: uh, (laughs) He didn't believe in God. Atheist. 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 Oh, those guys. (laughs) And he said, my argument is not with the faith. It's with the faithful. (laughs) To make a long story short, I think the world is created every summer, every day, the world is created. And it's up to us, us to... Break out of there already, you know. Enough, so much blood, so much persecution, so much misunderstanding. Uh, this place is, is a place where breakout is possible, and maybe this is the start. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you.
8: And about Farrakhan in context, may I? Uh, well, he alluded to Farrakhan. Can we? <laughs> is it is it really important? I think it is. And I'll be really brief. Okay.
2: Some of us might not know who Louis Farrakhan is. Go ahead.
8: Farrakhan, i got a lot of problems. He, he killed my one remaining hero from the 60s, Malcolm. Okay. But about 20 years ago, the Times did uh, a, a review. Farrakhan, who hadn't played the violin in 50 years, studied the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. This this was, he hadn't played in 50 years. Mendelssohn, the the greatest Jewish composer of all time. And the Times' review was that he doesn't have the technique, but he studied this music, and he understand it, and he played it with overwhelming sincerity and sensitivity to it. What do you say? All I mentioned Bruden Bruder. You know, there's something in all of us. And Farrakhan was reaching out to the Jewish community through Felix Mendelssohn, and I found that absolutely stunning. That's Thank all you. That's Thank all you. Michael and then Angela.
2: Going I'm going to repeat what Michael said.
1: Um, Arnie reminded
12: us that uh, with the repetition of these scriptural passages, it just grinds into fine powder the consciousness with them, which gets acculturated with, with those anti Semitic stereotypes. But, um, Susan, Oh, that's what I was going to say. Well, yeah, okay,
2: so say. So, that? Um, you know, we face, a, we face a, 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 among the many challenges we face in uh, inter-religious, inter-faith, inter-spiritual uh, understanding are, the, are our sacred texts, right? When the Gospel of John blames the Jews for killing Jesus, we have a problem, yeah. right? Especially when it becomes the heart of of the um, Passion Week liturgy, mm-hmm. like it's a gigantic problem uh, because this is what little kids are hearing from the get-go. We have a gi- enormous problem. We're not uh, the, the, so um, uh, uh, Reverend Susan Uchendus has taken upon herself to start to begin a solution in the Episcopal Church by changing the lectionary that is the required readings in church to not highlight you can't you're not going to rip that section out because it's our sacred books but by highlighting other passages and making am i saying that right
0: and and translating i'm not saying it right at all so so part of part of what we're looking at and susan can speak to this but as arnie's saying these texts emerged um john in particular at the point when Christians or followers of Jesus were being kicked out of the synagogues. And so they were dealing with a deep wound in their consciousness that got expressed in the way they wrote their texts. And then that text becomes canon. We can't, as you suggested, decanonize because that's essentially rewriting history. The canon is an historical document, it is what it is. So how do we contextualize the canon so we understand the wound that led to the text being read that way? So part of what Susan has proposed, it's not just changing passages; it's a contextual retranslation of ah, those passages. Sorry about that. Um, so it's not deleting the passages; it's saying, okay, this word, the Jews here, we know that contextually and historically it was a reference to, let's say, temple authorities or or the Judeans uh, in relation geographically. Are there ways that we can translate it contextually? That doesn't then sort of expand out to give a blanket statement about the Jews. Um, Would you say more about that translation effort?
13: Yes, um, I did start it, but it has now been taken over by the College of the Holy Cross, which is a very powerful uh, Jesuit college in Worcester, Mass. So it's now unstoppable, I would say. Mm. Yeah, and it is—you know—it's just getting started, but. The Holy Week readings as appointed by the lectionary have been translated by the team of um, translators that I found and um, it's online. So if any Christian, um, I mean they can't, I think most churches need permission from on high for a congregation to change the translation that they use in the liturgy but they can certainly study it outside mm-hmm. of the liturgy, compare it to what's there. Anyhow, if anyone is interested, you you can go to readings from the roots.
0: Readings. readings from the roots. Yeah. Dot.
13: Dot edu. Bard.
0: Uh, readings from the roots. Edu. Bard, as in Bard College. Um, And what that work does, because the way most of the mainline Protestant and Roman Catholic traditions work, they're authorized translations from the the hierarchy in your tradition. And so they will often um, authorize a number of translations. So in the Episcopal Church, we can read on Sunday the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the New International Version, the King James Version. These are all approved translations. Most Episcopal churches now use what's called the New Revised Standard Version. Um, so what we would need to see happen is that this new translation would receive approval from the church authorities. Um, bishops have the uh, actual authority to authorize translations for local use, so that's probably how it would first start. You would have some open-minded bishops who authorize local congregations to use this um, contextual retranslation that removed any anti-Semitic misinterpretation, and then as it caught on, it would spread and hopefully be approved um, for wider use. Um, I know at St. Gregory's for years now, I have often just retranslated the passages myself because what my responsibility is as a preacher, if I say, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, and then I say, the gospel of the Lord, (laughs) then I have a responsibility as the preacher to contextualize that. I've just read this text and I need to explain to you why the text says that. And then you end up wasting all your preaching time contextualizing this passage rather than talking about like good, exciting news. And that's important because that means we're not rewriting or ignoring history. So that that contextualized preaching is significant, but it would also be nice to sometimes have a translation. And we could even footnote in our bulletins that we're using a contextualized translation to remove um, any anti-Semitic misinterpretations of these texts. Um, so it's, it's a very important work in progress in the church that, that Susan spearheaded. And a really substantive step. Yeah. yeah. Towards this healing work. Yeah. Right, because if you, grow up, if you grow up in a church not hearing the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, and you it's going to change you. It's gonna change. And these are subtle influences. You know, you hear this and it it impacts you on a very subtle level. And so, um, and this is why this is actual hopeful work. The kind of work we're doing, the hope is, isn't that it's a nice feel good moment for all of us. It's that these kinds of conversations will multiply, will spread and will change our systems and structures and institutions um, and bring understanding and healing between Traditions that have been divided. So, do you want to add Susan?
13: Uh, one more point, and to speak to, to what you said earlier. Ronnie. Yes. Ronnie. Yeah. Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah. Um, that I just uh, was reading about the the Oberammergau Passion Play, and what a contribution that makes to anti-Semitism. Do you know about the pa-
2: the famous Oberammergau Passion the Play in German Germany? Passion play. I mean, it's,
13: billions oh. of people. Are exposed it, to that.
2: It's like it's an incredible festival during Easter where the passion is theatrically presented and it's yeah. been going for how long?
13: Um, I'm not sure, but
0: since a long, 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 long since time. The 17th <laughs> <Yeah>. century. <laughs> 17th in a very, century. Um,
13: it's established way. And, and he uses as its base text years.
0: the Gospel of John, right. which has this language in okay. it. So,
13: so the point is that years. the yeah. man, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Once
2: every 10 years, she said.
13: Thank you. the 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 man who's been in charge of it since the nineteen, well, for three or four iterations, um, has for the last two times been very open to meeting with Jewish representatives who say we really think you should retranslate some of this. Mm-hmm. and he and, and not only that, but the costumes, all kinds of ways that that Jews had been denigrated mm-hmm. and. He's so open, and he's making changes, and this is at Oberammergau. Wow! And um, so I feel as though, you know, it's this tiny thing, but here we are, and maybe one of us someday is going to be in charge of something important, and are we going to be open to hearing from the disadvantaged group?
0: And I, and I
13: think this is. Planting a seed, yeah. and we can't know what kind of tree will
0: grow. That's that is our hope that we are planting seeds. And as Ronnie suggested, that maybe this is palliative work. It may be true that any work we are doing right now for the human species, for healing, <laughs> is palliative and hospice care work. Um, may be and true. That may be true. <laughs> and and the question then becomes: Hey, if the human species has reached a tipping point and right. there's ecological <laughs> collapse happening. It may all be palliative care, it may all be hospice work. And if that's the case, the question is, will we die in love or not? How are we gonna die? Are we gonna die working towards healing and understanding as the species goes down in flames? Or are we gonna die entrenching our divisions and our hatred and animosity? And of course, if we move towards dying in love, that's also our greatest hope for surviving. That healing work, that understanding work, that reconciliation work, it's the only thing that can give us a future, us coming together at this level. And hey, if if it's not our future, well, we've maybe at least saved the planet enough for another species to <laughs> give it a try once we're gone. Um, so I think the question of whether it's palliative or hospice care work is irrelevant. The question really is, is it the work of love and healing and understanding, or is it not? Um, and whether we know we're going to die tomorrow or not die tomorrow, we should still be doing this work. Angela, you've been waiting, and then Karen.
4: I just Thank want you. to say that anytime you two or either or of you are doing anything, <laughs> I'm going to be there. <laughs> I so respect your scholarship and your integrity. Thank you. Um, I'm one of those kids that was told the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Um, and I was raised in paroch- parochial up until my um, degree. But I had some nuns who always talked about Jesus who went to the synagogue who was a Jew. And I'm saying to myself, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, but Jesus was a Jew. What's the problem? What's the problem? And of course, being taught parochially, um, Jesus started everything. And I'm saying this to him, no, Jesus was born a man of a woman. Um, what am I missing? What are they not telling me? And then when the teacher, when the student is ready, the teacher is made known, and I find somebody who is steeped in Jewish culture and history and scholarship, who loves the first century. I'm saying, that's it, (laughs) that's it. I better find out what happened in that first century, okay? And now, when you say, what's the next step? Let's, the way we're talking about the gospel, what about resurrection, atonement, and return? What do these mean to Jesus in his time, to his people?
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Where, where does this all go? So I'm wrapping it up. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Good questions, too. When we taught our class initially called Judaism and Christianity shared origins, different paths. That was the first class. We did it by subject resurrection, repentance, and we could revisit it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With
4: this history now. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Some of us, thank us don't you.
4: remember everything from
0: Barbara <laughs> 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 hasn't spoken. Oh, well, Barbara and then Karen. Oh, okay, sorry.
18: Okay, this is a personal story that I have been coming to Torah study for years and actually studying both traditions. Um, being in the Christian tradition. And always it's either or. I'm going to see it this way, which is the rational way, or I'm going to see it from a heart-centered place. And Hattie, during this class, said to Matthew, I dearly love the Nativity stories. I don't know what to do with with them, finding out that they're not exactly the way they're presented. And Matthew said, uh, you can. You, you can live in both worlds—the rational world and the, the heart world. I was like, "You can't." <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. So it started me on a whole new path of exploration, which is what I'm on now. Very exciting. So thank That's you. Wonderful. <laughs>
2: thank you, Barbara. Karen.
11: Um, just so, I, so much I could say, but um, <laughs> just this one little piece that has really stuck with me as a motif that mm-hmm. I've really gotten from this class. Is the sense of the fellowship of the open table. Who is sitting at the table? Who
2: sits at your table?
11: I, I, that, that has just been really powerful mm-hmm. for me. And that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: That is so important. So, so it's clear that one of the main themes of Jesus' um, uh, public ministry was inviting people to his table who weren't normally included around that table because they were... Outcasts, low, all the, all the right. different.
0: If you were part of good society, you wouldn't eat with such people. The people you wouldn't eat with. Um, and um, also, the, Juda- and the table is like, is, is our, our society in miniature. Like, we see all of the boundaries of society enacted at the table. Like, that's where it happens. Right. And Judaism, like all ancient traditions, was
2: a had a clear boundary of who was in and who was out. This wasn't unique to the Jews. Um, uh, It's a very, very new idea that we would, and I said this in a previous class, that we would invite non-Jews to a Passover Seder. The Passover Seder is a recommitment to the covenant of Israel. right? That's what it is. The people who are part of the covenant sit at the table and retell the story and say this is who we are. One of the gifts of modernity, especially of Western democracy, especially of the United States, is this idea that we should all sit at the table together. Um, Now, how well does the US manifest it? We can talk about that forever, right? But this idea that we should all get a place at the table, um, I'm going to sit at the welcome table that we all get a place at the table, that's, a, for me, a sublime experiment in human relations, right? And so I'm part of the Jewish world who is embracing that as, let's see what happens to Judaism if we really invite everybody to the table. Uh, don't know the outcome. It's an experiment, but... The fact that, that so much of what Jesus was doing was challenging the social norms of the time, as a Jew then, actually makes me feel an affinity towards what he was doing to rile up his situation. Um, and there's plenty of debate in the Jewish world about how open we should be. Why? Because we want to survive, right? So uh, um, it's not. It's not a slam dunk that we should open our table to everybody. You understand? It's a high Jewish value to survive. So we can pass it on. So uh, so this isn't something I do casually. It's something I do with great thought. And that's why you could say that I'm glad there's no Jewish Pope because Different synagogues can try it their ways and not be excommunicated. And you can go to the synagogue where you like the values that are getting experimented with there. Uh, and that's what, we're doing.
0: that's what we're doing here. And I relate to Jesus in that regard. As, as you said that, I thought of this verse, and I looked it up to get it exact. This is Luke thirteen twenty nine. Jesus says, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely, lovely. You know
2: what I want to do? Uh, there's two more comments, and then I want to read something that I wrote as I was thinking about this last class.
7: Just a question, because um, <clears throat> in, in the, what you just said, there was something added about having a non-Jew at the table. Because I know my mother was very adamant about having her non-Jewish friends at the Passover table.
0: Right, a very American innovation. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> utterly American. American. And, and this is a, a, a development within the Christian tradition, too. We have Jesus practicing this wildly open table fellowship. And then we have Christians who put guardrails around their tables. So you know, our, our table in worship we, is the altar, and we actually put rails around it. And historically, Christian traditions have said, only baptized Christians are welcome to come to the table. And then it's usually only those in our tradition. So only a Roman Catholic can come to the table, or you know, if you're in an Episcopal church once upon a time, it was only Episcopalians can come to the table. And in the um, 70s, within our tradition, there was an opening that said, what if, what if not just Episcopalians were welcome? And this was when the ecumenical movement was kicking off, and we said, what if we said all Christians are welcome at the table? And um, so then it was all baptized Christians are welcome at the table, even the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. (laughs) Um, And and that spirit has continued today, and now we have Christians saying, well, do you really have to be baptized to come to the table? Does anyone who feels drawn to the table, would Jesus welcome anyone? And so that's a a conversation that's very alive within a lot of mainline Christian churches, including the Episcopal Church. Um, Do we offer an open invitation, or do we say only the baptized? Um, And so we see the way our traditions um, can start with this very open thing and then little by little we start putting up the guardrails, you know, and deciding who's in and who's out. And and again, I'll say, since we've been studying history, we are
2: taking advantage of an historical moment with an American idea uh, to see how that infuses our traditions with this idea of radical equality and openness. And uh, I like this experiment. Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who founded the, who created this approach to Judaism called Reconstructionism, in which I was trained, was explicit that when we encounter in our uh, host civilization values that we think are going to advance the cause of human of, of 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 humanity and the earth, we as Jews need to conscientiously embrace them and integrate them into our lives, and that's. The, that's the approach to Jews in which I was trained and embraced. Um, Hattie, briefly.
9: Yeah, two, two quick things. Um, one is that for for you just reminded me of this. For was my tradition for many 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 years. A huge Christmas party, and I was with my friend Bonnie, and we looked at each other and we looked at all the guests, like twenty five guests we realized we were the only two Christians. At your (laughs) Christmas party. And and everybody else was Jewish. It meant nothing. We had a wonderful time. But here's the thing. So, uh, Matthew, maybe you can make this clearer. But at a certain point, Jesus said, I'm adding these two commandments. One, and in what context, I'm not sure. One was you shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul, paraphrasing a little, I think. And the other was you shall love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Right, he's just quoting Torah. Yeah. Ah,
9: yeah. and then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets.
0: Right, so it's a question about how do you center your understanding of the law and the prophets. What are the what are the orienting commandments within the whole body of commandments? And he and and other rabbis would would lift those up. These are the essential commandments on which everything else hangs or depends. Right, right. To to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as as God, as yourself. In
2: a in a previous class I spoke about this at some length, showing the other Jewish sources from the same moment. That said the exact same thing as Jesus. So Jesus was wasn't a, making up new commandments, there was an he was ongoing quoting the discussion about if you had to boil it down to something, what would you say? And those two are present in Jewish texts okay. of the same moment as Jesus. He wasn't doing something did extraordinary. You, at did that you moment. talk
9: about that
1: in, in these? Yeah, yeah, at one point.
2: I've, hey, it's been, a, it's been a long ride. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: didn't take it all in.
2: Friends, I, just, I, wrote, I sat, uh, I was on an airplane and I had time to write. And I wrote some reflections. And I'm going to put it out on, um, in the email. But I think I'll read it to you as, uh, to wrap things mm-hmm. up. Uh, a rabbi and a priest studied the Gospels reflections. Jesus was a radical Jewish prophet and teacher, preaching and demonstrating an utterly authentic interpretation of the message of Judaism and its prophets. That is, no one is expendable. Everyone is a child of God. His message was not rejected because the Jews were unwilling to hear him. He was not crucified because the Jews were cruel and lacked compassion. He was crucified because he challenged the existing power structure, Rome and its client temple priesthood, during a period of intense ferment in Judea. He really did present an alternative to Roman rule, the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of Rome. And not just any god, but the god of the covenant at Sinai. That is the god who frees slaves and protects the powerless. The god who demands justice and decries the abuse of power by human rulers. The god of the Jews stands in direct opposition to pharaohs of any age and any stature. Judaism promotes a fundamentally skeptical, even jaundiced view of the ability for humans to exercise power justly and compassionately. Pax Romana was cruel. It is well documented how many thousands of subjects were executed in order to preserve this peace and keep the taxes flowing to the coffers of Rome from throughout its empire. It's quite a different idea of peace than the vision of the Hebrew prophets. And everyone shall dwell beneath their vine and fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. The Jews of the first century were a fractious bunch, chafing under the (coughs) intense tax burden of Rome while still maintaining their own ancient system of tithes and donations, struggling to accommodate Roman rule while still maintaining their own cultural independence as a proud and ancient people absorbing the values and thought patterns and cultural forms of Hellenism, while at the same time adapting these values into Jewish frameworks, speaking Greek while still praying in Hebrew. There was no clear path forward as different groups engaged in retreat to the desert, active guerrilla warfare, spiritual resistance, assimilation, and accommodation. Desperation was rife, as were hopes of salvation. And these groups fought bitterly amongst themselves. The impassioned followers of Jesus of Nazareth were one of these groups. They were Jews. Following his execution, they struggled to make sense of his death. Jesus had died, but his teachings could still be passed on. They created their own communities, and the stories of Jesus' life grew into literary form. After the rebellion against Rome was mercilessly crushed, the Jewish survivors surveyed a catastrophic landscape. Countless dead and enslaved, Jerusalem and its holy temple in ruins, and still no salvation. These different factions of Jews tried to interpret this horror. Was the temple destroyed because of our own sins? Many rabbis took this position. Many followers of Jesus interpreted the the destruction as a result of so many Jews not following their prophet Jesus. A rift grew wide between these followers of Jesus and other faithful Jews. The rift became a chasm as these followers of Jesus, now becoming known as Christians, began to allow Gentiles into their fellowship without requiring these newcomers adhere to Jewish covenantal practices of male circumcision, dietary rules, and other ancient Jewish ways. The Christians resented being pushed out of the Jewish fold and claimed that they, in fact, were the bearers of a new covenant that superseded the Jewish covenant of Mount Sinai. In time, the rupture was total. The remnants of the Pharisees, known as the sages or the rabbis, (coughs) reorganized Judaism into new forms, no longer dependent on the sacrifices and rituals of the priestly class in the now destroyed temple. Their reworked version of Judaism, which retained adherence to the concept of the Jewish people, would eventually become the Judaism that we recognize today. The Jewish followers of Jesus would reinvent the Judaism of the temple into a form that left Jewish peoplehood behind and created a new form that was open to Gentiles. There was great mutual residual resentment. The Christians expressed their resentment by making the Pharisees and the Jews as a whole the villains of their sacred stories. None of this would have necessarily led to the emergence of lethal antisemitism in the church, but for a world-changing historical moment. In the early fourth century, the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire. And Christianity was adopted as the state religion. We must reflect on the tragic irony of this transformation. Jesus, whose teachings are a consistent critique, challenge, and shunning of imperial might, now instantly became the god of empire. Human beings, in our truly bottomless ability to rationalize anything (laughs) if it serves our desired end, now made Jesus into a conquering god. In the coming centuries, countless atrocities would be committed in Jesus's name against the very poor and powerless that Jesus had championed. But our course of study has taught me that Jesus's teachings are profound challenges to all social and political hierarchies. By contextualizing Jesus' teachings in the world of first century Judaism and its struggles under Roman military occupation, I find myself challenged by and relating to Jesus' example of radical spiritual resistance in the name of his God, which is also my God, to all abusive power structures. I find that I do not envy thoughtful Christians like my friend and colleague, the Reverend Matthew. To reclaim the beautiful, spiritually alive, and challenging path that his tradition's founder taught, Matthew must continually wade through centuries of the abasement of those teachings in the name of domination and control. If I imagine myself in his position, I can feel in myself the urge to rationalize defend and apologize for these abuses, which are, in fact, perversions of everything that Jesus taught. Yet I deeply support Reverend Matthew's calling to bring forth and disseminate the profound and worthwhile living heart of his tradition, just as I labor in my own vineyard to do the same. It is odd to me to think that Judaism, in some essential ways, benefited from our history of political powerlessness. What I mean is that Judaism was founded by those who saw themselves as outsiders, slaves, wanderers, and thus brought into the world an ethos that values the stranger, the outcast, and the wanderer as children of God, no less worthy of dignity than any so-called divinely ordained king. As political outsiders for hundreds and even thousands of years, we could continue to critique the abuse of political power with only minimal opportunities to abuse it ourselves. Of course, this did not prevent us from our own sanctioned tyrannies, <coughs> accompanied as they always are by self serving justifications about God's plan. The subjugation of women, for example, in the Jewish tradition, comes immediately to mind. But again, I do not feel the burden of history clouding Judaism's core message in the same way that I sense a burden of history on my Christian friends. That said, the 20th century found the Jewish people exercising state-sanctioned power for the first time in 2,000 years in the modern state of Israel. Many Jewish thinkers have addressed our return to power and the question of how to apply our ethos of justice for the disenfranchised now that we had raised an army and all the institutions of statehood, could we withstand the lure of power? This is a battle that is raging in the Jewish world right now. I cringe as certain Jewish factions now summon our God in defense of their own desire for control and conquest. Many of these parties now indeed control the government of Israel. Power indeed corrupts. But the battle is not lost. And Christians and Jews who oppose this perversion of our ancient traditions' shared message can make common cause. For through our ancient prophetic, prophetic lineage, in which, place I, in which I place Jesus as a late and authentic addition, we know, as Jeremiah wrote, thus says yod heh life unfolding, let not the wise glory in their wisdom Let not the mighty glory in their might. Let not the rich glory in their riches. Rather, let them who glory, glory in this, that they understand and know me, that I practice kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. It is in these things that I delight, says God."
4: Thank
2: you. Nice. Amen. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That came pouring out, and so I thought I'd share.
0: Thank you. A very nice
17: summary.
0: Um, and where that leave, leaves us, in my mind, is you know the question, what is our way forward? And we often want to go back to yesterday's language. Um, and I think we're being invited to create a new language, a new understanding. Um, What we're doing doesn't fit in old understandings and old forms, it's something emerging, and that's exciting, and we're figuring it out as we go. New
13: music.
0: And what? New music. New music for one thing, yeah, or or old music.
2: (laughs) Uh, so let's close with a song. I just learned this last week, so it's, I can't get it out of my head. So, the Hebrew <coughs> words it's the prayer. It's, there are so many prayers for peace in our prayer book. It's like the theme of the prayer book. So, uh, the, the words are Ose Shalom Bimroma.
5: Ose <coughs> Shalom, shalom.
2: Bimroma. <laughs> May the one who makes peace in the celestial spheres. <laughs> Shalom <laughs> Shalom make peace among us." And uh, uh, I just learned this melody by a cantor out on the west coast and I keep singing it and then it has the English verse is, "May the one, may the one who brings peace bring peace down, bring peace down." Here's how it goes. Oh <laughs> Shalom. Be him, Roma. Oh, se shallow. Be him, Roma. Who ya a set, who ya shalom. set, who ya a set shallow. shalom. ya a set, who ya a shalom. Ale. May the one, may the one to bring peace, bring peace down, bring peace down. May the one, may the one to bring peace, bring peace down, bring peace down. May the one, may the one to bring peace. Shalom, hu ya aser, hu ya aser, hu ya aser shalom. Hu ya aser, hu ya aser, hu ya aser shalom. Alleluia. May the one, may the one who brings peace bring peace down, bring peace down. May the one, may the one who brings peace bring peace down. Bring peace down. Bring peace down. May the one, may the one who brings peace, bring peace down. Bring peace down. May the one, may the one who brings peace, bring peace down. Bring peace down. May the one, may the one who brings peace, bring peace down. Bring peace down. Amen. 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 We'll see each other again. Everybody.
15: Thank you, Matthew.